Most British people are comfortable with fully lit and heated home environments, alright? You, you, you strap a two litre bottle of Strongbow to each hand and you can't take it off until you've drunk it. <laughs> Not that I endorse binge drinking. It gives him a skate, gives him a timetable, basically. Tomorrow night he's coming in at 1, night after that it's 12.30, and the night after that he's got to get home to the wife and kids, so it's 12, alright? Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. Uh, this is our uh, first in our three-part look at A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And so it's going to be a little bit unusual this because it's a bit of a Christmas special if you like. It's going to be over three weeks. We're going to take two weeks just doing our usual uh, sort of page-by-page page guide to the book and read-through of it. And then the third week is going to be a look at its place in history, but also uh, various adaptations and retellings of it. I mean, we don't want to waste too much time getting into it then if we're going to do a close look at the book later on. Um, very briefly, Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, a 19th century... Is it? I suppose technically it's a novel, isn't it? Although it's very short for a novel. It's in between a novella and a short story. Yeah, it's well. I, I tell you, I tell you for absolutely definite, it's shorter than the Stephen King quote <laughs> short story that we did last week. <laughs> yeah, was this one of the ones that he released sort of as a serial? Because he did that a lot, didn't he, Dickens? He did do that a lot. I actually think it's not that, and that's why it's of manageable length. I think mm. the ones that he released as a serial are the ones where he was just being paid by the word, so he would churn out a thousand word this week on David Copperfield's. Waistcoat or whatever, <laughs> or his thoughts about a previously unregarded and totally inconsequential great grandmother or something, because um, he was getting paid for it. Whereas this, I think he genuinely wanted to make a point, so he sort of kept it quite short and sweet, which I find quite quite mm. insightful. So, what's your what was your first? Um, how did you first come across this this grand old tale, A Christmas Carol? Oh bloody hell! Um, I'm not sure I could tell you. You know. Because it's it's such a such an embedded part of the of how we do how we understand Christmas mm. um, that I, I I've literally no idea. I mean, probably therefore it was either some some terrible animation from the seventies that was on early on Christmas morning <laughs> one year when I was a kid, or it was the Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah, um, I know which one of those I'd rather it be, but I couldn't tell you for sure which one it actually is. How about you? I think yeah, similar. I think my first uh, my first contact with it was probably uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol, the Disney version. Oh so, yes. I mean, I mean th- this will be why it's so it's going to be so good at, at the end in the third part of this series to actually go through some of these r- adaptations because I think for the vast majority of people these days, the first. The first introduction to a Christmas Carol isn't the Charles Dickens version. It's another. It's just some different, more modern retelling of it, which uh, yeah. which has yeah. been done because it's been done to death, really, hasn't it? Since then. Oh, geez, yeah. I mean, and I was really one of the things I was happy about this being so short was that it, it didn't labour it because hmm. I can't imagine anything worse than a sort of three hundred and fifty word version of a story you kind of you feel like you already know. Because mm-hmm. that just means that whatever charms it actually does have in the original are going to be totally swamped by your memory of Michael Caine walking around with a hunchback. <laughs> but this is it's actually quite snappy, and I quite appreciated that. Yeah. Okay, so it was written in uh, December 1843, and uh, which is a, probably a good time to write a Christmas story. And he says in his introduction, um, I've endeavoured in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea. Uh, which shall not put my readers out of humour with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me, may it haunt their house pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. By lay, we mean exercise it, <laughs> not the more <laughs> modern version of laying something. <laughs> may it haunt their houses pleasantly, and nobody fuck the thing, all right? <laughs> For God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Show a bit of bloody respect I, to this ghost. I can't believe it's come to the point where I have to tell my audience not to shag my stories, but seriously now. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we start off. It's divided into a number of chapters. So the first one is Marley's Ghost. And it's a it's a brilliant... It's one of the most famous starts, as, as we did with Pride and Prejudice. This has got a very famous first line. And this time it's, Marley was dead to begin with. Bosh! 
What a start to a creepy Christmas tale. And you know what? I read that and I was like, that's a really great opening line. And I realised that I'd literally never come across it. Yeah. Like, so this is famous, right? And I'm just horrifically underread. <laughs> Other people know about this opening line, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, is that the case? Yeah, it's, 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 it's like uh, the, uh, you know, a man in, uh, a rich man being in want of a wife or whatever it is for yeah. Prejudice. Yeah. It's the same. I think it's the same kind of fame. The uh, yeah, the classic opening line: "Marley was dead to begin with." Great um, line. And you know, while I'm aware that we have a more of a zombie light motif on this show that I'm usually happy with, <laughs> yeah. um, that's every writer of zombie fiction ever since then. So, which is to say, every writer of zombie fiction has looked at that line and gone, "Fuck, <laughs> fuck, ah, oh, that would have been so t- bollocks." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the line I should have written. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, and he's also referred to Marley's also referred to as dead as a doornail, which has become quite a common phrase now. Um, oh, is this the origin of that? Yeah, or is it? I, well, he he says it, and then he says, "I don't know why I've picked doornail." Which remember, just think he must have picked it himself. Um, but I don't know. Maybe he's just commenting on how strange a phrase it is. It could be that. I, that would make more sense, I think. But I, <laughs> I do like. Victorian novels for being sort of whimsical enough to get into this and <laughs> and who gives a shit about the word count yeah we're going to put the third paragraph into talking about the figure of speech which says somebody can be dead as a doornail or a coffin <laughs> nail possibly this is quite interesting as well because uh, this is a writing style which has gone out of fashion somewhat in the last century or so and it's yeah. speaking directly to the reader, the author as if he's talking to you and not, yeah. you're, only, you're only, only normally in a modern novel uh, see this if it's written from the first person. Um, yeah. Whereas this guy is bas- it's basically the author's voice saying, "Look, I'm going to tell you a story," and it's just really yeah. strange to read these days, isn't it? Actually, that's very true, and I think there's mileage in that in that particular voice. Uh, actually, it really worked in the Mist last week, didn't it? Mm. Um, yeah. Sorry, no, that's not true. It's I'm going to tell you a story from the perspective of one of the characters instead of a guy saying. Sit you down by yeah. the fire, yeah. and yeah. yeah, no, 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 no. I see. I yeah, I like it. I mm. you know, it feels a little bit kind of familiar and comforting and so on. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't decide whether it's really informal or really formal. Uh, I can't. It's one of the <laughs> because it's either like you just said, sit down. I'm going to tell you a story, or it's uh, so it's very formal, or it's let's dispense with the you know the idea of trying to dress it up as something real. This is just me telling you a story. Um, so yeah, yeah. it's weird. Yeah. Anyway. So there's a Scrooge is introduced with a there's a brilliant uh, description of him just to kick him off. And uh, gives you a real feel for just what this this guy's like, or what he's like at the moment. And I'll just mm. give you, just read a bit of it. It is. Uh, he was a tight-fisted hand to the grindstone, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. I mean, it, I mean, <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I would like Charles Dickens much more if he actually said that. He was like, <laughs> now, obviously, I could give you another nine pages of flowery prose on how much of a shit this man was, but you'll get it. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. So he, he very clever, uh, carefully describes Scrooge and his, his character, and then he, he very vividly sits him in the middle of uh, Victorian England in the fog on a cold... December night and I just felt there was something really atmospheric about the start of this book from the from the the first line the the sort of the brooding malevolence of the first line to the uh, <laughs> to the sort of just the descriptions of both the characters and the and the surroundings it just really dropped me into it yeah yeah I, it really makes a lot out of that kind of the the misty streets of London, Governor, <laughs> yeah. sort of stereotype, isn't it? Which is legit and exists for a reason, I suppose. But I did realise that, like, I, I like every one of my American friends quotes this stereotype to me about what they think England's <laughs> like. Yeah. Every last fucking one of them, and I'm like, guys, you get, no, you got it, no. Well, sometimes, <laughs> but not the way you're thinking. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. That's good. I wonder if um, this is so vivid, either either because the writing's so good, or because it's been retold so many times that you just get this sense of greater richness just because you've heard the story so many times before and told in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so so we're introduced to oh, uh, Scrooge is so um, miserly that it's freezing cold, but he's only got one lump of coal on the fire. Uh, so it's very, very small, crappy little fire trying to heat the whole house, or the whole yeah. accounting office. And that this really spoke to me because um, I moved into a house which has got a... <laughs> this is gonna, For American listeners, this, this is going to just lay with the point that this is what England is really like. <laughs> but I recently moved into a house with a, a sort of a coal-stroke wood-burning stove, fire thing. And when I first started, I only ever put a couple of a couple of bits of coal on because I didn't want to spend too much money, and it was really <laughs> it was really cold and miserable and rubbish. That's and then, hilarious. Yeah, we finally came to put more on and actually spend a bit of money on it. It's lovely now, but uh, yeah, I can well, really relate to Scrooge. Here. Unbelievable! I can really relate to Scrooge here. That's the, that of all the things I wouldn't have expected you to say. At the start of the Christmas Carol, yeah, Scrooge, me and him, we share a wavelength. Scrooge is my boy. The funny thing is, because a bit later on, when he goes home, uh, he's climbing the stairs, isn't he? And just he's got this small candle, and uh, darkness is all around him. And he says, "Darkness is cheap," and he liked it. Oh, and, it's such a great line, that isn't it? Yeah, but again, that was similar to how I first started in this house. <laughs> I go to bed and because it was on because the the house is on a meter, I wouldn't want to put the lights on. So instead, <laughs> instead of a candle, it'd be my iPhone light. But I'd be like climbing the stairs to bed. <laughs> so yeah, I really, I, I really feel to the need right now to say for our American listeners, please understand, Matt is an outlier. <laughs> Most British people are comfortable with fully lit and heated home environments, all right? Yeah, oh dear. Anyway. Matthew Scrooge. So so we're introduced to more of uh, Scrooge's approach to Christmas when he has this argument with his nephew who shows up. His nephew is really into Christmas and he's inviting his uncle round for the holidays. And uh, Scrooge, I think Scrooge goes to far to say something like, um, anyone who goes around saying Merry Christmas should be boiled with his own pudding. Um, so he's not particularly I think that's to supposed do. to be a figure of speech, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> this, is, this is not actually saying, you said Merry Christmas, Merry fucking Christmas, get in the saucepan, I'm boiling you alive. <laughs> I don't think they say that. Um, but this is this is Scrooge's whole thing, isn't it? It's like, and I think this is really interesting now that sort of bar humbug has become the kind of just a way of saying, uh, you know, I'm not very fun, and anybody having fun is a wanker. Yeah. While I think Scrooge is kind of about that, actually, what he's really saying is, it's no good saying Happy Christmas when money's all that matters. You know, he's kind of. I think he's kind of saying this quite kind of. He's he's almost making a quite a twisted moral point when he says "bar humbug." He's saying because humbug meaning insincere emotion, mm. right? Yeah. He's like you're all just fucking faking it. So fuck off. <laughs> it's he's his like, idea of things. Um, <laughs> Do you reckon he's like he's like a Holden Coalfield gone wrong at the end? Of, oh my like, word! It is it's Holden Coalfield having become a successful captain of industry in Victorian <laughs> England. That's it, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, that's what J.D. Salinger is getting at. Yeah, Indeed. yeah, yeah. See, <laughs> see, the only way to avoid being Scrooge later in life is to have a rambling series of poorly connected episodic <laughs> adventures in an unrealistically undangerous... Do you know what? Never mind. I've done it. I've done it. For Spent more three details, episodes on it. Let's move on. <laughs> For more details, see the Catcher in the Rye episodes of a month ago. Um, yeah. He has this argument with his nephew. There are a couple of people who come around collecting for charity... And he sees them off as well. Uh, this is quite a classic exchange again now, um, where these two guys turn up saying, oh, we're collecting for the poor at Christmas. And he says, uh, oh, are there, are there no poor houses or jails left anymore? <laughs> what a great line. <laughs> I love yeah. that he says, and I continue to support these institutions as well. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah. they're still there, are they? Oh, yeah, and I pay for those. Yeah. Which is this is just absolutely unbelievable. No, I don't think charity is right, but debtors' prison. I'm happy to give money above and beyond too. <laughs> well, it, does that mean is, is that him saying basically I pay my taxes? 
So that's, yeah, that's yeah, charity no, enough. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. The, the funny thing is, I've heard people say that nowadays as well. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I mean, and that's the power of the story, isn't it? That people mm. are, people never really stop reasoning this way. If there's a big enough thick positive thing that most people like, there'll be a, a group of people who take great delight in saying, oh, it's all bollocks, though, isn't it, really? I pay my taxes, fuck off. Mm. And, yeah. I, and uh, you know, the point of this book is that that's an absolutely tragic position to take, but that's what people do in order to feel a little bit in control, I suppose. Yeah, and I quite like how this the when the chair, then the guys are asking for how much he's going to put him down for. Um, he says, "Oh, uh, it, you know, what shall we say you've given us?" And he says, "Put me down for nothing." And they say, "What you miss? You wish you remain anonymous?" He goes, "I wish to be left alone." <laughs> and I love that sort of quick exchange as well. Yeah, that, that was, there was something very, very Phoenix Knights about that. Hmm. Yeah, the, this um, the TV series where the main character is this incredibly kind of curmudgeonly northern uh, club owner. Hmm. And it's like it's like so. Uh, so, what do you want us to put down for? I want you to put me down for being left the fuck alone. <laughs> Great line. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's that. The, the 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 worst. I think the harshest thing he says of all, though, is when they say, "Oh, you know, there are there are poor." Men, women, and children dying uh, this Christmas, and and Scrooge says if they're going to die, then they should do it and decrease the surplus population, which is a which is a phrase that will come back to haunt him, surprise or not. <laughs> you amaze me. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. Um, so <laughs> there are a couple of other people he interacts with here, just which again cements this position and this character of his. One is there's this little child who comes to the door and starts singing. Um, a Christmas carol hoping to get a bit of money out of Scrooge and uh, surprisingly enough ends up running away terrified with nothing and uh, and also Bob Cratchit we don't know he's called Bob Cratchit yet he only gets introduced a bit later on but he's the clerk for for Scrooge he's one of his employees and Scrooge gives him the day off begrudgingly because nobody else is because there's no point opening up uh, on Christmas day and he says, he, he again, he describes Christmas Day as a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every uh, once every year. Which, uh, again. Yeah. Well, which is a great image of the kind of character who's so, like, who's literally decided that the only source of joy in the human world is earning money or making money. Mm. And so every second that he's not making money just feels like this intolerable tax on him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I deserve to be earning money. <laughs> He would, I tell you what, add 150 years to this and this man would be working in the city of London and no mistake, wouldn't he? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that, that's, where we leave, that's where we leave his work and he goes home to his uh, cold and uh, miserable abode. And uh, on the way in, he's got this knocker uh, on his door and it, it, it changes into the face of his, his old... Uh, now deceased partner, business partner Jacob Marley, and it gives him a bit of a fright, as it would anyone, I suppose, if a door knocker turned into the face of a recently deceased friend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I, I particularly love the way he like it turns into his face, and he goes, <laughs> and then and then he goes through the door and turns around to see if the back of his head is there, yeah. and I just absolutely love that. Like it's kind of like I'm serious, bar humbug. No, I'm I'm nobody's taking me for a ride. Oh, I wonder if his pigtails poking out the back of the door. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, so it's. I mean, I, interesting little delicateness of touch. You know, he's clearly teetering on the edge of something, even while he considers himself to be sort of like set in stone and immovably inhuman. Yeah. He's actually quite sort of caught in himself. Yeah, and it's this sort of warring uh, two emotions between he, he wants to, he, he's cheap and he wants to keep things, you know, so he, he wants So even when he goes into the house, because if this happened to me, right, if I came home from work and mm. I thought I'd just seen a ghost outside my house, that'd be every single light in the house would be on blazing. <laughs> <laughs> and hang the expense, eh, Matt? Hang, hang the, the expense. expense. Massive <laughs> fire in the grate, everything going, screw yeah. it. So this is where me and Scrooge depart, because despite seeing this apparition, he um, keeps the house dark, climbs the stairs in the dark. He does do sort of a sweep of the room before he goes to bed, uh, but hmm. before he sits down to his gruel before bedtime, which uh, sounds delicious. And 
as, as he's as he's sitting there eating his crappy supper, the the servant's bell starts to ring. And I lo- I love all. I probably worth taking a moment to say I love all of this. It's it's, it's written so well, and it, you get that sense of you know creeping horror and I'm probably not horror, more just uh, just uncomfortable you know dread yeah. throughout, and it's really gothic and well. And you know, I just really thought it was really well done. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. You're definitely very good at making you see it all in your mind's eye, mm. which is even more impressive, you know over a century and a half later where you know we don't live in houses that look like this and we don't rely on candles like this and we don't have you know even big ornamental door knockers like this or anything Mm. um and yet still i can see it all in my mind yeah so the bell starts ringing and he thinks what on earth's going on there and then there's this sound of like the cellar door opening sort of down downstairs And then the the clanking of chains coming closer, uh, which eventually stops at his door, and in comes good old uh, Jacob Marley as a ghost, carrying what appears to be just all, loads and loads of chains, and uh, the, mm. the, the, the chains are linked to things like cash boxes and ledgers and deeds, and he's got to drag all this around with him, sort of through the afterlife. Um, yeah. What a what a fantastic uh, character! Oh, great entrance! And again, you know it's good writing because this is now the most abominable cliche in writing about ghosts, and I'm still like, <laughs> oh wow, that's amazing! I'm still blown away. Um, and I tell you what, I liked about it actually was that like this whole idea of chains. I'd never really, never having read this, but had seen the idea that ghosts should have chains on for some reason. Yeah, and never really. Never really understood why, except that they're supposed to make, you know, pleasingly ominous clinky noises, as indeed <laughs> Marley's do here when he's crawling up the stairs. And yeah. How great a sequence is that, by the way? You don't just have the ghost appearing by his bed. Oh, no, you can hear it coming up the stairs. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is some frightening shit. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, I thought the chains are really, really good kind of, um, kind of like, motif way of describing kind of what the what the ghost is about yeah um yeah now scrooge tries to convince himself that he's just uh you know he's dreaming this and he he says that it's probably just indigestion and he he comes out with this this quote which is quite famous now there's more of gravy than of grave to you (laughs) i like that despite the fact that he's which is yeah it's a fairly good line right (laughs) also however He's had gruel, and that's all he's had. He can hardly be like, oh, I've eaten very rich food, and now I'm hallucinating. Yeah. If you hallucinate when you've eaten gruel, I think you have problems that go beyond hallucinating ghosts. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. The, 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 we get, what did you make of Marley? Because for me, he's this, he's this really sort of sad and exhausted and tortured spirit, isn't he? He's, so, um, he's there to, to provide a warning to Scrooge. But uh, you don't get much warmth, though. All I really get is just, just yeah, exhaustion and, and and sadness. Yeah, yeah, very much. And it feels like he's just been forced to do this. It's not. There's no real. It's, it's not sort of he. He's got this real affection for Scrooge, and he wants to help him avoid his fate. It's just. It yeah. seems something that he's been from on high told to do, and he's just got to do it. <laughs> Yeah, or it's almost, I mean, that's part of what the chains thing is about, isn't it? Is this is like, he's compelled to do it in the same way as, a, you know, um, a hungry man is compelled to seek food. He's like, he, he's like unbearably uncomfortable unless he's doing this thing. Yeah. And this, and, and that that's the nature of his, call it what you like, hell or probably purgatory. You know, that's the nature of what he has to do after death to make up for his life is mm. he's kind of irresistibly drawn to the people who are making the same mistakes he is and trying to warn them. Yeah. Um, but you're right, it's not, I mean, it's interesting that it's Marley, but they, they don't have this moment where, you know, you're not a Marley coming in and going, Ebby, me old son, listen, <laughs> yeah. you're being a knobhead, aren't you? Really in. You know, he doesn't sit down and talk to him as only friends can talk to friends about their failings. Yeah. He just kind of comes in and goes, chains, creepy shit, we're going off, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 
and, and the interesting thing with the sort of the horror elements as well it's not you know he's not described in great detail about his terrible features or anything really uh, compared to sort of modern horror retellings of stuff like this but the one thing that really illustrates the sort of macabre nature of this is the the bandage around uh, around his his chin so when when people were buried at this time they'd have the the, the chin would be bandaged up so because otherwise your your mouth would just sort of fall out <laughs> when, you're sort of, when you're a corpse you're like when it rots you, you the sort yeah. of the mouth opens on its own oh so, right so 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 the head's bandaged sort of around sort of you know like sort of uh, around the face to keep what? basically to, to keep the jaw shut out of consideration for the grave robbers i think it was out of consideration for sort of people viewing the dead you didn't want you didn't want to you didn't want to go and see granddad and he's got his gob open basically no oh, all right that's fair enough if we're talking about a kind of open casket scenario then fine but i thought you meant like when they were buried like now yeah. grave robbing's a big problem <laughs> these days so we've got to be considerate haven't we compassionate society and everything so go on wire him up <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe what? Maybe, maybe there was something else. But, I, but basically, I, I don't know. I'm not 100 percent sure why they did it, but they did that uh, to keep the jaw shut. And this guy, um, Marley, sort of removes the bandage, and his his mouth sort of flops open so he can talk. And then he he puts it back on a bit later on as he leaves. And it's just yeah. this little, it's just this little touch that really gives you a bit of a chill. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um. So that's that's Marley, and he, he talks about how uh, he wasted his time on Earth. And Scrooge says, "You know, you're a man of business, and you you did so much to make money." And he's and he's sort of Marley gets ang- almost angry at this and just despairing, yeah. and says, "This was that that was a waste of time, and my business should have been helping those who needed help." Um, yeah. and it's this lesson which he tries to teach. He sort of. He gives to Scrooge now, but um, Scrooge isn't really ready to hear it, is he? Yeah, it's not exactly a story with a punchline, is it? You know, it doesn't take you through all of these things that he wants to show you, and then at the end it goes, and so what I'm saying is, he leads with it. Marley just comes in and he's like, you're a knob, I was a knob, because of that I have to tell you not to be a knob. Hmm. You know, he's very kind of, he's very sort of smack down about it. And, yeah. um and, and very open about what his, you know, how wrong he's been. Yeah, he also says, Marley, that he spent a lot of time wandering around these last, you know, since he died, which he has to just keep doing. But also, he spent some time just lying invisible at Scrooge's side from time to time, just to keep an eye on him. And this makes Scrooge feel, obviously, a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if it's because of the ghost thing, or because, you know, having one of your dead mates lie down next to you. Bit weird. (laughs) <laughs> bit weird yeah like I yeah. mean you could play this scene a different way couldn't you if you were minded to be totally sacrilegious about a Christmas carol you know <laughs> I've been lying down next to you Ebenezer it would be it would be very disturbing wouldn't it <laughs> yeah well luckily I don't think it's intended as that but, oh okay uh, alright it's, 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 it's as if Charles Dickens didn't want to put any innuendo into his writing <laughs> Mr. Trick there <laughs> Now, the main reason for Marley uh, visiting is to tell Scrooge to expect three more spirits to visit him over the next three nights and expect the first tomorrow at one. And Scrooge says... I like, I, sorry, go on. I like that these are ghosts that keep appointments. Yeah. I like that he turns up not with a kind of, you know, voices from the eldritch beyond will come to shit you right up and you won't even know when they're coming he gives him a ske- he gives him a timetable basically <laughs> tomorrow it's night a- he's coming in at one <laughs> night after that it's 12 30 and the night after that he's got to go home to the wife and kids so it's 12 all right so it's- don't fuck around just listen to him he's a busy ghost all right it's such a british ghost story isn't it <laughs> <laughs> now ebenezer uh we've made the schedule here so don't be late and uh Imagine the ghosts queuing outside. And yeah. sort of the ghost of Christmas present saying of Christmas past. No, 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 you first. It's fine. No, I'll wait here. <laughs> no, I insist. I insist. I, I like the idea of a sort of, some sort of ghost waiting room or a sort of clock in, clock out place where they're sort of like, morning, Marley. Morning, past. 
<laughs> you on Scrooge, are you? Yeah, yeah, you still set for tomorrow. Oh, I'll do what I can, mate, but the last one's been properly dripping over. I don't know if it's going to... No, do you know what, mate? It's Christmas, in it? I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. No worries. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Christmas Future was supposed to go second last week, but bloody tube strike, so he didn't have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> So I got the call, didn't I? Because I was the liver in the corner. So Christmas yeah, presents got to go. Hell, just... Let me tell you this: I'm almost thinking about moving a bit further away from the centre of purgatory. It's nothing. <laughs> you, they take advantage of you, and it's as if you've got nothing to do but wait. I've got a life here. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, it is quite strange, but that—that that is the system that they've put down this time round. Apparently, the spirits are going to visit in three set times. Uh, the first one coming at one o'clock. And then, having said that, Marley gets up and decides to leave. He walks out through the window into the night. And this is a real sort of shocking punchline as well, in that he floats out into the into the street and Scrooge looks out of the window and there are loads of people just like Marley, loads of spirits just floating around with these yeah. chains on. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> oh, it's interesting that Marley has said as well that Scrooge has got an even longer chain than his waiting for him when he dies. So this is Scrooge yeah. seeing what's you know what's going to happen to him, yeah. and some of the spirits are actually sort of crying and trying to help people who are still alive. Who are sort of I think there's a woman who's hungry in the street or a child, and they can't do anything anymore because it's too late because they've died now, and they, there's this sense of you know loss and uh, regret for <clears throat> as you as you got from Marley yeah. that they couldn't that they didn't do enough in their lives. And now yeah. they're stuck reliving it again and again. Yeah, it's this compulsion, isn't it? Like I said, like it's it's this very strong idea of a world in which there's right and wrong, and if you do wrong, then you're going to have to pay for it. Mm. And um, uh, which is, you know, used a very powerful effect here, I think. Mm. Um, but I do also think that it's a very, very, like you say, it's a very British ghost story in that Marley's primary pitch to Scrooge is not what all the other ghosts tell him. You know, you could have been a good person, look at all these other things that were part of your life, you know, remember, Ebenezer, remember. What yeah. he does is he, he says, I have this massive fuck-off chain, which is the most <laughs> enormous pain in the ass, right? And you've got a bigger one waiting for you because you're such a knob. Don't believe me? Go and look out of that window. Yeah, thought so. Gonna mend your ways, are you? Yeah. It plays. It, it took completely to his laziness and his lack of desire to have unwieldy <laughs> luggage in the afterlife. Yeah, Scroogey. Basically, these chains are a right hassle. So you do not want them. <laughs> Listen, mate. I'm not fucking around. All right. It's look at it. Clank, clank. And I'm gonna carry that with me everywhere. Go and take a piss. Chain. Go to the shops. Chain. Running to catch the bus, you can fucking forget it, mate. Chain. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like did you ever play Edward Ciderhands at university? You, Edward Cider. You, 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 you strap a two litre bottle of strongbow to each hand and you can't take it off until you've drunk it. <laughs> <laughs> not that I endorse binge drinking. Of course but, not. Uh, of course, yeah. as a product of the British education system. <laughs> and obviously, things like going to the loo is extremely difficult. So it's kind of like that, but you can never take the two litre bottles of cider off your hands. Wow, that's oh just horrifying. Mm, it is. <laughs> so let's move on to the uh, the first of the three spirits is the next chapter. Scrooge wakes up and it's midnight. It appears to be midnight the following evening. And he, he thinks he may have slept through the whole day. He can't quite work out what's happened, can he? And yeah. I think there's there's some kind of supernatural time shift happened here, hasn't there, it seems. Yeah. Or he, or he slept through Christmas. So I would have thought, he, I would have expected him to wake up and be really quite happy about it. So, oh, well, I lost all money anyway. I was going to lose money anyway. <laughs> Great. I've missed the horrifying parade of humbug for another year. Great. <laughs> so he's he's waiting. He, he's, he sits up from 12 till 1 effectively waiting to see if this spirit's going to turn up. And sure enough, at one, the spirit does. Uh, the spirit appears by... It draws the curtains at the side of his bed. <laughs> so he's sleeping in a four-poster bed. And this... this They must have been so claustrophobic, um, yeah. sleeping in a four-poster bed, because you've got curtains all around. So yeah. you can't see into the room. I don't know, maybe it felt more... It feels weird, because, you, cause, you know, being used to having a bed and then... You can look out into the room while you're in it. 
yeah. the thought thought of being hemmed in feels slightly claustrophobic to me. It does, although we live in an age of radiators and central heating. Yeah, good point. And I <laughs> and I imagine back then any any sense of claustrophobia was lessened by the feeling of being warm for the first time all day. <laughs> Especially if you only had two pieces of coal on the go in your fire at work. <laughs> yeah, good point. Now, what did you make of the Ghost of Christmas Past? Because I think this is the one. <laughs> this is the one ghost that, um, especially in retellings, is often very different from how it's described in the book. Yeah, well, he's a midget for a start, isn't he? Like, yeah. or no, no, not even that. Like, he's he's a he's a strangely proportioned. Like, the, his whole description really doesn't map to anything that's familiar. Or, no. you know, it's a very fantastical kind of presence. Mm. And, um, yeah, and did you notice as well that it describes him as having bare arms and bare legs and then wearing a tunic? Because mm. what that made me think of is I couldn't, <laughs> you know, damn my my <laughs> capacity to imagine. Because all I could imagine was somebody wearing like a sort of, like, like a dayglow tabard <laughs> and nothing else. <laughs> I was like, the ghost of Christmas past is a traffic warden who's got pissed on the night out and has decided to go out and do a, do a few tickets while he's hammered and have a piss on all the cars. Like, that's all I could think of. I thought you were going to say, like, a, a, a sleeveless top with, like, some killer arms. Some really oh, yes, he's got the guns out. Absolutely amazing. This one's jingle, this one's bells, eh? Come on. <laughs> Yeah, with a couple of bells tattooed on his shoulder. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? No, what's that? That's actually the um, Santa Claus. You ever see the film uh, Rise of the Guardians? No, I was obliged to watch it on a bus journey once. I'd like to make oh, it clear. Um, but he's got Santa features in it as this like like hench old guy with two <laughs> massive forearms, and on one of them he's got naughty, and on the other one he's got nice tattooed. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty good actually. Yeah, so 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 he's got this weird, so this this ghost's got this weird kind of outfit, tunic without arms and and and, and legs cut into it, and uh, he's also described as both really old and a child, and also its he- its head seems to be sort of it's almost like a a candle flame, um, sort of yeah. this light, and he's got he's got sort of an ex- he holds an extinguisher in his hand as well. Yeah, uh, what a great right. idea for a hat. I mean, it's it's great, <laughs> but you can't put it on film, can you? Because it's just him carrying around like a big cone ready to put <laughs> on his head. Well, the interesting thing is, the the best representation of the Ghost of Christmas Past, from the ones I've seen, is there was a recent Disney one uh, of Scrooge, of uh, A Christmas Carol, with Jim Carrey as Scrooge. And oh, it's sort yeah. of a, it's an animated, you know, like sort of digitally animated one. And the ghost of Christmas past there is, it's almost like a candle, like a human candle, and he's carrying this little extinguisher around as well. It's very yeah. odd, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, uh, I, I have to say, I liked this much more than I disliked it. I thought it was a really interesting way of describing the ghost. And I've got to say this, a damn sight more impressive than fucking Father Christmas, which is how I've seen the ghost of <laughs> Christmas past represented in subsequent media. Oh, um, right. Yeah, yeah, no, he's. I've I've seen him in several things where he turns up and he's got the big sort of you know Coca Cola truck red outfit and the white piping and the and the rest of it on, and and it's always seemed to me a little bit. Well, I was going to say humbug, and now I suppose I have to. Like it just seemed to be a little bit like, oh, well, that's a bit shit, isn't it? Yeah, um, well, see, that, that's that's why I imagine the Ghost of Christmas present quite a lot, and that's how I've oh, seen interesting. Quite a lot. Oh, yeah. right, okay. Oh, well, well, well I mean, we, we shall see when we get there. Well, yeah, I suppose so. But yeah, it's a very strange, very strange apparition, even as apparitions go. And mm. uh, and what and he, he said actually that the spirit says he's been forced to uh, extinguish his, uh, this light for years because of uh, the way that Scrooge has acted. So a lot mm. of the it's interesting because he, he, what what happens here is he shows Scrooge a succession of different um, Christmases gone by. And a lot of them are sort of happier times, aren't they? But he says as well that I've had to extinguish myself so many times in the last in recent years because of how mm. you are. And it, it got, I got this impression of sort of the brighter the uh, the spirit burns each year, the sort of the better the Christmas was, and the and the smaller the more uh, meagre and miserable yeah. the Christmas has been. Um, yeah. 
So the, the first place to go back to is is his child is his early childhood at school, um, mm. and it's uh, back to a village where Scrooge grew up and uh, a past long, long forgotten, as it's described. And it yeah. it really brings a change on Scrooge straight away. He, he immediately yeah. reacts to it, doesn't it? And he's he's much. We see him for the first time actually quite happy and excited about something. Yeah, and he is almost, I mean, he is almost like a kid at Christmas um, himself, and it's quite a transformation. Um, and I tell you what, I, I quite, I really liked this. Like, it's not kind of a, you know, he doesn't spend the first three kind of scenes being a kind of bad-tempered child about it. He doesn't He doesn't do the Holden Coalfield sulk thing. Yeah, He's instantly really plugged back into these emotions, and it makes you wonder, you know, what would have happened to Scrooge if he hadn't, you know, almost consciously decided to let go of that. You know, it must have been mm. a decision that he made at some point to forget how to be that happy. Mm. And um, and it's, it's clearly all lying there under the surface, but he's constructed a life such that he's the only influence on himself and it's turned him into this, you know, heartless, selfish monster. Yeah. Um, really interesting little kind of way of doing it, this. Yeah, so the key line phrase, he was conscious of a thousand odours floating in the air, each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it was the, it's the most powerful depiction of nostalgia I've ever I've ever read, to be honest, and it really, I yeah. felt really sad reading it for him, because, because of how different you, I, he, he was as well, when he thinks of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and... And, and I tell you what's what's really cool about that is that it doesn't do it just for the sake of like, oh, I remember way back when. You know, people mm. have made fortunes off of making people feel vaguely nostalgic without actually addressing things. But you're yeah. right. He doesn't go for a particular kind of nostalgia. He goes for the nostalgia itself and grabs it by the nuts and puts it in his story. Mm. And it's incredibly powerful writing. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we see every time he sees something that makes him remember what it's like to enjoy Christmas, he Mm. regrets something miserable that he's done at the start of the book. So this time he sees him, all these children running past, shouting and being all excited, and he regrets that he didn't give any money to that carol singer who came round. And we see more examples of this later on. Yeah, the, yeah. There's also this scene that he, this the sort of a few years later, he he, he sees this scene where uh, his sister comes in and invites him to come home. Uh, yeah. And there are two things here. One is she says that father's so much kinder now, which suggests some kind of uh, unhappy, very unhappy childhood going on there. Yeah. Um, if if your kid's got a, if if your sister's saying that, it yeah, you know, there's a reason, isn't there? Um, yeah. And also. It's obvious he, he, he loved his sister very much and there's this very brief exchange with the spirit where they say, you know, she she died, you know, how she died and obviously there was... It's just another clue into how... The Ghost Christmas past, this whole passage is, really explains how Scrooge has gone from who he was to who he is, doesn't it? And this is I think this is one of the key moments is yeah. uh, losing his sister. Yeah, very, very much. And you, again, the sadness is... He's so briefly sketched, like he doesn't spend more than a p- couple of paragraphs on it, but it's for that, it feels incredibly kind of sharp and fresh and, mm. and unavoidable, really. Um, yeah, really sad. And you're right, yeah, very, very economically done because we don't spend much time with her at all, but uh, you do feel a connection. Mm. Um, the, next, the next Christmas is when Scrooge is a young man working for this guy called Fezziwig, who's this... Who's this party dude is, is, is the Michelangelo of the uh, of the turtles <laughs> of the Christmas just for a second though, I thought you were talking about renaissance painters and then I was like oh, no, dial it in dial it in shark liver oil here we come go come on Dave come on <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah uh, and yeah so Fezziwig basically this boss throws this massive Christmas party and um, and the interesting thing here is at the end of the party Scrooge and one of his uh, one of his fellow co-workers and friends are talking in the room about how much they admire Fezziwig and how great a guy he is and this makes the present Scrooge think you know I wish I'd treated my uh, my employees a bit better because they might think that of me um, mm. and again it's, yeah. it's funny how quickly um, his his miserable sense of 
everything's crap and uh, I'm the only sane person in the asylum disappears, isn't it, when he's confronted with these memories? Yeah, and that's what I mean about him being sort of trapped in his present almost. Like mm. he's, he, you know, he wouldn't leave it behind so quickly if he wasn't subtly desperate to do so. Mm. But, you know, he's in, in, you know, without the intervention of these ghosts, he's clearly just like, well... Christmas means nothing, joy means nothing, and the experiences I've had in the past mean nothing. Mm. And in a way, these go this particular ghost is is like, all right, let's talk about let's talk about nostalgia. Let's talk about the power of where you've been and what you've done and what it meant to you. Mm. Um, and it grabs him by the nuts. Yeah. Now the next the next bit, so far, the these memories have been quite happy, and the sadness has come from just the you know the, the loss of them and how. You can't really go back to them. This next mm. one's a, a much, much more painful memory for Scrooge. So this is a, him sitting with this this young woman who it appears was very close to marrying him, and it's basically a breakup, isn't it? And she says yeah. to Scrooge that he's become a different person and he's more obsessed with wealth now. She doesn't feel that they can make each other happy anymore because she can't offer him that kind of. You know what yeah. he's looking for, yeah. Um, and it's it's a. It, I think this is a really, th- this is a sad breakup because it's there's no there's, there's no malice in it, and they're often the harder ones, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, because it's just like look, it, yeah. In a way, it's completely dispassionate. It's not like circumstances have ganged up on us. It's mm. look, this is shit. <laughs> you know, this isn't working. I'm off, mm. and. Um, and you're right. I mean, it is incredibly sad. And um, again, I think if it was laboured, it would seem a bit corny. But because it's because it's just one of many, many little vignettes, mm. it works in a way which is quite extraordinary. Yeah, and she leaves him by saying, uh, "May you be happy in the life you've chosen." And it's not said in, in uh, a sort of bit- yeah. <clears throat> and it's not said in a sort of bitter, you know, good luck with your crap choice. It's more, yeah. it's quite genuine, isn't it? It's saying, I hope you're happy mm. with what's happened, you know, with what... Yeah, what and uh, yeah, in that kind of like, you know, you've made a choice that I'm completely unable to live with. And mm. she says, doesn't it, you know, like, to to be two people who have become one is beautiful. To be one person that's become two is horrific. So no, mm. you know, yeah. we're no longer the same person um, and I can't do it. But honestly, you know, like, good luck. Mm. <laughs> Just because my life's not going to be part of your life doesn't mean that... I want your life to be miserable. Mm. Um, but there is that kind of, I don't think judgmental, but there's definitely a kind of sense of moral reproach in there because she's clearly like, I cannot begin to see how it could possibly make you happy, but mm. I'm going to allow you to live in the consequences of your decision. Yeah. yeah. Rather than hectoring you or guilt tripping you or telling you off or all of this. Mm. You know, I'm just going to be like, Guy, good luck. I hope it works for you. Yeah, and this really affects sort of present day Scrooge looking back on it, and he says to the, he says to the the spirit, "Why must you torture me so with these these sort of memories?" Yeah. And um, I think <laughs> the spirit's point of view, it's kind of like you know, take the rough with the smooth, pal, because you've just been seeing some really nice memories. And I, he says, doesn't he? Um, the way he explains this, the spirit, he says, you know, these are just things that have happened, and then they are what they are. Do not blame me. And he's the, the spirit's mm. basically saying, "I'm just showing you what's happened, and I'm not creating the story. <laughs> this is this is what happened." Yeah. yeah, I really love that line actually. Like, because yeah. that's the whole point of it, isn't it? Is that your actions have consequences, and that this is a kind of time out from your life mm. in order to look at what those consequences were and try and work out what amends can be made. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so and there is something quite powerful in somebody that Scrooge can't buy off or mm. be richer than and dismiss or dominate and abuse as we see later on with Cratchit yeah. um, who who can just stand in front of him and be like it's not my fucking fault you screwed your life up is it I'm yeah. just showing you what it is um, mm. you know you have an opportunity to do something about this but don't pretend that you can that, that you from your position of privilege can pretend that it's my fault somehow mm. yeah and uh, the, the the final sort of scene that Scrooge sees, which you don't often see in the adaptations, is this this woman. Um, who I, th- I think it, it, obviously it's his, the the woman who he broke up with, with a different husband and with all these children, 
very happy. Yeah. And I think her, her husband comes in and says, oh, just seen that miserable old bugger Scrooge, and they both laugh about it. And and that's the point where Scrooge there says, you know, you're torturing me with this. And yeah. there's this short argument with the spirit, and he tries to extinguish the spirit. Um, and it doesn't work, but he ends up waking up in his, in his bed again, and he's back to square one. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and that's the that's where we leave today, uh, because that's yeah. halfway through the book now, and uh, and what a it's a, a cracking ride so far, isn't it? Even though we know the story, I think. Yeah, I, and it, yeah, like I say, it takes something really special to be as surprisingly uh, quick in the sense of being alive as this. I really feel like that's a, you know it's a it's a, a very living book and I really uh, really enjoy it. And this is actually I didn't say this at the beginning. This is actually the first Dickens I've ever read. Oh, is it? Um, it is. Yeah, um, I did English at A level and I did a, didn't read a single word of Dickens, which would horrify Michael Gove, but suited me just fine. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and to be honest, whenever I've tried since then, I found it quite turgid and overlong and, and in dire need of an edit. But because this is brief and because he hasn't set out to make money off of the people who are subscribing to the Daily Express every day or whatever, he's mm. just out to tell a story and make a point. It's incredibly powerful. I'm really impressed. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I agree. It's much more, um, it's much more well, it's much tighter and well edited than uh, than I think some of the other ones, especially like uh, the last one I read was Great Expectations, and that it's a great book, but it is quite. You feel that there's quite a bit of fat in there, which didn't need yeah. to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 at some point, I'd quite like to do one of those actually for one of the podcasts, just sort of get into Great Expectations or David Copperfield or um, Tale of Two Cities or something like that. Yeah. Um, because I'm interested to see what stays the same and what changes between a little, little kind of short, really fresh feeling, quick run like this. And mm. your sort of longer door stopping tome kind of books. Mm-hmm. Well, that's for another time. But uh, next yeah. week, we will be reading the rest of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And then the week after, for your Christmas special, we'll be having a look at some of the modern day retellings of it. If you have any thoughts on the book, uh, you can send them to sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on Twitter at SharkLiveRoyal. Also, any suggestions for modern day or recent retellings of A Christmas Carol for us to talk about um, for the Christmas special, send them in. We have had quite a few suggestions already. And thanks for the people who sent them in so far. We'll mention them all at the end. Um, But yeah, you've still got time to get those in. You'll have this week and next. And then we'll get through a bumper crop of them uh, in time for Christmas. Yes. So in the meantime, curl up by the tree, by the fire, with your copy of A Christmas Carol. Stick on some classic Christmas music and uh, enjoy the holidays, people. <laughs>